0: Today's scripture reading is found in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 16, verses 21 through to 26. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is the word of the Lord.
1: You may be seated. Um, Who is this person standing next to me? You haven't met him yet, but I want to introduce him. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting Brandt a number of months ago. He and his wife, he- Heather, at a conference that we were at. And we got talking, and uh, we found out that we had uh, the same theology prof that we both really respect and were so encouraged by. And, but he's betrayed us now. Yeah, he's gone to the States. That's right. Uh, but yeah. that's okay. We forgive him. <laughs> um, but but so we went out for, for lunch together, and as I got to know Brant and Heather, um, Brant quickly became one of those guys You just, the Lord brought you together. We, we started to connect, and Brant's probably the smartest guy in the room right now. Sorry to inter- uh, <laughs> embarrass you. Uh, so Brant just <laughs> came back from uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary where he got a, an MDiv, but if that wasn't enough, he also got an MTH uh, with a thesis. He just sent me the thesis. I've started in on it. So he's one of the big brain guys. Um, he's going to bring the word for us this morning, and I, I've already looked at this message. There's a very encouraging message from a very, very important passage. Now that I've embarrassed you, bring us the word, brother. Man, Fred, you've set the bar up here. <laughs> I can't reach that. Um,
2: I, I'm Brant, as you guys just heard, and uh, so we can get all the mispronunciations out of the way. That's Brant with an A. It's not Brett. It's not Brent. It's Brandt, and uh, that way we'll save ourselves some problems down the road, I think, as we talk. <clears throat> um, I'm also uh, from a certain place. I'm from Mission. Does, it, does everybody know where Mission is in this room? Yeah? Okay. Three hands go up. Hands go up. So Mission, Mission's a long way east. Need you need a passport to get there, and, uh, and there's lots of burnt-out cars on the side of the road. Um, it gets a little scary. People have guns um but believe it or not i actually like being from mission uh it's uh, it was a good place to grow up in a lot of ways i love this city though i love being with you guys i've been telling uh everyone that i meet um the last week or so as uh, fred asked me just a little while ago to come preach this message i've been saying how excited i am to come here and worship with you guys this morning I really have been excited. It's been a delight uh, to come. A, a few weeks ago, we visited, my wife and I, and it's just wonderful to be with you again and to worship the Lord together. Isn't it a great thing to worship our Savior, to worship God together? We praise Him. We love Him. So, uh, if you would turn to Matthew sixteen twenty-one to 6. And I'm just going to pray. Father, Lord, we, we come before you, uh, as people who are in need of mercy, who are in need of grace, people who are in need of strength. Oh, Lord, we are are needy in, in so many ways. But we are confident that we can come to you through Jesus, Lord, to receive everything that we need. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. Lord, I ask right now that you would help me. Lord, I am... I am not all the things that friends said, Lord. I am a, I'm a weak man. Lord, I'm thankful uh, for your grace, uh, but I need you to work through me by your spirit. I we all need in this room your spirit to work in our hearts to cause us to to exalt and glorify in you, Lord, to, to delight in Jesus Christ. We just ask that you do this, that you would you would accomplish it so that we'd all leave this place just rejoicing that God is so good. And we tell our neighbors, we tell our friends our family members, about how wonderful you are and what you've done for us through Jesus. Although we need your help, we just ask for it, and we are confident that you will hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So who are the people uh, that you think of in life who've succeeded? Or some some names come to mind, maybe Jeff Bezos, you know, some people probably have heard about him in this room, or Oprah Winfrey, I think she's kind of cool. She's a super wealthy woman and successful in a lot of ways, but she's, you know, the self-made type. She came from a rough background and she really accomplished a lot. What about Bill Gates? Anyone think about Bill Gates? For a successful person, or Richard Branson, Sir Richard Branson? I listened to an interview with him just the other day and uh, it was really interesting. I, I like to listen to podcasts and to uh, interviews of people who have different perspectives on life than I do and want to learn from them. But the lives of successful people maybe are especially fascinating to us and to me. And I I don't think it's just me that's fascinated by these people. You know, tons of books are written about their lives, aren't they? Right? How to to unlock the code of success, right? Just live like this guy. It's almost impossible, but try. You got to get up early at 5, you know, four thirty. You have to read an absurd number of books, not just in a year but every day. You got to set these awesome routines. You got to eat healthy. That's hard. I mean, I can I admit that I like McDonald's once in a while. Is it allowed in Kitsilano? <clears throat> Yes. Okay. Awesome. Uh, You've got to be a good people person. you got to have a high emotional intelligence to, to work with people and to figure these things out. And we ask ourselves, how did they get from here where I am? How did they get to there, to where they are? And the answer is sacrifice, isn't it? Lots and lots of sacrifice. They've given up sleep, right? They've given up time with family. How about a regular work week? Forget about it hobbies? Not so much. But what if what if things aren't as they seem? And what if their outward success isn't really worth all those sacrifices they've made day in and day out? You know, every successful person, and I think each of us in this room, does this thing where we tally up all the sacrifice that it takes to get from point A to point B, and we think, okay, is it worth it? You know, do I value point B well enough to make those sacrifices to get there. But what if we have it wrong, and what if all of our sacrifices wasted? What if those sacrifices don't lead to the comfort we've been talking about, or these guys have been talking about in this series—the comfort from the cross? What if they don't lead to ultimate, lead to ultimate comfort at all? It seems to me that before we move forward in our lives, we're going to have to do some calculating. We're going to have to ask ourselves the questions. What is worth sacrificing for? Well, I have good, this, I have good news this morning. In our, in our text, Jesus has things to say to us. He's got answers for us about life and which sacrifices are worth it. And I pray that as we study God's word together right now, that his spirit will be at work in your heart to show you that Jesus is worth every sacrifice. The life that he offers is greater than anything you could possibly hold on to. So let's read this text with me. I'm going to flip to it. in Matthew 16, 21 to 26. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And forfeits his soul. So before we unpack this text this morning, we recognize it comes to us from a particular book in the Bible from Matthew. So we've got to do a little work on the context to kind of get ready for the passage that we just read. So I just want to say to you, right off the bat, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. And it's one of four Gospels or four accounts of Jesus' life. And Matthew's interest in particular as one of those Gospel accounts is to highlight to his readers that Jesus is the king who has come in fulfillment of all the things that God has promised in the first half of the Bible. God promised to to deeply transform a sinful people, to make them new, to love God truly from the heart, to love one another, and to radically shape them to look like him. And one of the things Matthew wants to show his readers was that to truly be a a follower of God was to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The one that God had sent. And Jesus, Matthew shows us, is building a new community called the church. And as we come to chapter 16, Matthew's really zooming in now on this community aspect of the book. And he recounts the way just before our passage begins that Jesus checks in with his disciples to see, are they really getting it? How, how are they coming along following what Jesus has been doing, what he's been teaching? Are they up to speed And Jesus asked them in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, who is one of those 12 disciples, those 12 special followers of Jesus, he answers boldly and accurately in verse 16. It's beautiful. Look what he says. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Peter's really saying, Jesus, I recognize that you are the one that God has promised would come to save his people. You are the answer to every promise that God has made. Peter's right. Peter gets it. So in verses 18 to 19, Jesus keeps going. And he tells Peter about the way that he would establish his church, his unstoppable new community of people. Who would follow him. And it's this glorious moment. There's Jesus and the 12 disciples. And they're discussing what God is doing through Jesus. To build a new community of people. To fill the earth with the glory of God. It's exciting stuff. They're really just sitting there. Standing on the tip of the iceberg. And they get a glimpse of all that's beneath them. All the glorious plans of God. But that's verses 13 to 20. When we leave that section and start our passage we see that even jesus closest followers even his 12 disciples didn't really get it sure they saw that jesus had come to rule as the one that god had promised but they didn't understand the scope of what jesus would do they didn't see how it would happen they didn't really get what it meant to be his disciples and to follow him on his mission it becomes apparent that jesus is going you've ever you ever been here jesus is going this way And the disciples are going this way, right? I mean, I have that happen to me a lot in discussions, probably my own uh, poor communication abilities, right? And you're kind of nodding your head along with something, Uh uh uh-huh, 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 wait, what's, hold on a second, and you're, you're, you know, you're trying to figure out what happened. You know, how did we get from there? I think we're not on the same page. And you know what happens when that happens, right? What's necessary is a series of confrontational conversations sometimes to kind of sort things out, to get back on the same page. And that's what happens here. There's a severe misunderstanding. And our passage is a series of confrontations to correct what the disciples were thinking. So here's our outline. The main point is really that Jesus shows us what true life is. And he shows us what sacrifices are necessary and are meaningful in life. But he does it by two confrontations. Number one. By confronting the disciples and our understanding of who Jesus is. And then, in number two, confronting our understanding of what it means to live at all. And we see that in verses 24 to 26. So the first point, 21 to 23. The second point here, 24 to 26. So let's just look again. We can't read God's word enough. Let's, let's read verses 21 to 23 again. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you have not set your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So you've got to put yourself in Peter's shoes. Imagine that you were a first-century Jew living in Israel under Roman occupation. It's tough to imagine. But imagine that you saw, on top of that, this political and social corruption. And you were raised as a Jew who had a steady diet of these promises of the coming king from the Old Testament, who would save his people, who would restore order and restore the kingdom to this glorious prosperity under the rule of God. And now imagine what it meant to see Jesus He's come. He's healing the blind. He heals the deaf. He heals the lame. He calms raging storm. Even even nature doesn't have any say over Jesus. Jesus controls nature. He feeds multitudes of people off of just a few loaves and a few fish. He speaks with authority, with his unearthly wisdom from God. And you're thinking, man, this is the guy that God's raised up. This is the Savior that he's set up to set things right, to fulfill the promises. So Jesus is marching toward the capital, towards Jerusalem. He's teaching and he's healing along the way. He's working these incredible miracles. And you're thinking, nothing can stop him. When push comes to shove, I bet Jesus has his almighty push up his sleeves, and those corrupt religious leaders in Rome don't stand a chance. And then Peter says, and you're getting excited here, that Jesus is the Messiah in verse 16. He says it just straight out. Yes, it's exactly what you thought. You suspected, and Jesus confirms it. He says, that is the case. Things are going to get real really soon. And you're on the side, not of the losers. You're on the side of victory. you're with jesus jesus even said that hell's gates wouldn't stand a chance against you in the community he's building wow but then you hear verse 21 look at that with me verse 21 you hear jesus tell his disciples that he must go to jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed and on the third day be raised wait what Hey, Jesus, um, I heard you say suffer and die. Uh, You're probably tired. We've been marching a long way. Um, But let me help you here. I think you meant to say I'm going to go to Jerusalem to seriously devastate all evildoers. Uh, Did you mean to say that? Is that what you're going for? The funny thing is it's a thought experiment for us, but Peter actually does this. He takes Jesus aside and it doesn't go well for him. Look again at 22. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Can you imagine the guts it would take to just grab Jesus and pull him aside and say, Hey, I know you calm storms and you teach with authority, but I think that you're not seeing things right. And Jesus turns and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. Wow. And that that escalated quickly, didn't it? What a rebuke. I don't think any of my rebukes or any of yours will ever make it into the history books. This one is in the annals of history till today. And they're famous for a reason. They show clearly how far Peter's expectations were from the plans of God. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So where did Peter go wrong? What's up with Peter? How did he miss this? You know, Peter had no room in his mind for a suffering Messiah. His mind was so full of this immediate glory and the prospect of this certain victory that he wasn't able to see the full scope of the salvation of God and the way that those purposes of God centered on a cross. To Peter, it looked like Jesus was just going to give up and give in to the corrupt religious powers and the rulers that he hated. But the thing is, victory beyond Peter's wildest imagination was only possible through the cross. So why, why do I say that? What did Peter miss? I think there's three things that we can look at that Peter really clearly missed. I think he missed number one first that it's only through the cross that Jesus has victory over every enemy. Not just Roman enemies, not just corrupt religious officials, but over every enemy. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 21. And we'll read to to 22. Paul says Jesus' victory through his death and resurrection is victory that is victory for Jesus where he's exalted not just over these Roman authorities but far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Now that's victory. That's victory through the cross. Jesus is exalted to the highest position of supremacy, not simply over Jerusalem, but over the entire world. Every enemy is crushed beneath Jesus' feet. Amen. Through the cross. The second thing that Peter missed is that it's only through the cross that sin is finally dealt with. Sin in the Bible refers to the way that our human hearts are bent, not towards worship and praise and obedience of God, but away from him, toward what is opposed by God. When I was a kid, there's this, this awesome lake in Mission, believe it or not, there's nice places in Mission, and uh, and there's this cool bank of sand that would go down into the lake, and we would build waterworks in that bank of sand, we dig these holes, these caves and these tunnels, and we take the water in big buckets and we drop it down and watch it go, and, and we kind of choose the path of least resistance and get into the lake. But the thing is, our hearts are like water. and they're always looking for the path of least resistance. but for us, that path is not towards righteousness and towards God. It's away from him. It's towards sin. And our sin is serious at a level that you and I can hardly fathom. The Bible says that it's worthy of eternal punishment from holy and perfect God. And why is that? Well, our sin's against God who is infinite. And if our sin is against God who is infinite, then our sin is infinitely serious. And the only thing that's valuable enough to cover an infinitely serious sin is an infinitely valuable sacrifice. Enter Jesus, the Son of God, on a cross. On the cross, Jesus, God in human flesh, was wounded for our transgressions. As I I listened to Jake's message from a few weeks ago, it was a great message. The punishment that brings us peace was poured out on him. And because of his infinite value, his blood is enough to cover over all of our sins so that we're accepted and we're loved by God. As his adopted son's and daughters, we're forgiven completely of every sin, past, present, and future. That's good news. I cling to that, I was clinging to that this morning. Without the cross, God's just anger towards you for your sins would never be dealt with. You know there's a third thing though that Peter missed, and it's this. Peter missed that it. it's only through the cross that death itself is destroyed. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are made truly alive. Because when we become Christians, we're joined not just in his death, we're joined with him in death, but also in his new resurrection life. Just look at Ephesians again with me in chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus. So when you become a Christian, real, deep, true, spiritual life, the very life of Jesus is birthed inside of you, changing you from what you were a person who is oriented towards sin, toward corruption and away from God, toward a person who is inclined towards God and worship through Jesus Christ. And this new birth of spiritual life is not just a little thing. It's the foretaste of eternal life in a new creation body where all will be made right. Without the death of Jesus on the cross and his subsequent resurrection, that new life doesn't even happen. We aren't raised with him. So to sum it up, through the cross, Jesus doesn't just triumph over Rome. He doesn't just triumph over corrupt religious leaders. Jesus triumphs over every enemy. He triumphs over sin. And He triumphs over death. Peter underestimated, didn't he? You know, in the months before the, the first test of the first nuclear bomb, the Manhattan Project scientists had estimated that their bomb would yield the equivalent of between 700 and 5,000 tons of TNT. As it turned out, the detonation force was equal to about 20,000 tons of TNT. Four times larger than the expected maximum. Oops. The light was visible as far away as Amarillo, Texas. Which is 280 miles to the east. Windows were reported broken in Silver City, New Mexico. Some 180 miles to the southwest. One observer remarked, I love this. This is rich language. The strong, sustained, awesome roar warned of doomsday and made us feel that we puny things were blasphemous. That's, that's awesome language, isn't it? That's great. The men and women who participated in the Manhattan Project, they underestimated just how massively powerful this bomb would be. And similarly, Peter's calculations of victory were far, far short they were also man-centered. He looked inward. Peter didn't realize that what looked so horrible on the outside, this prospect of suffering and death for Jesus, was in fact the very road to victory beyond Peter's wildest imagination. So I'm wondering this morning, I'm wondering whether you underestimate Jesus too. Maybe you're like Peter. Maybe your vision is for Jesus in your life is a, is a man or woman centered Jesus it's you centered Jesus it's more about you than about him maybe you want a nice little savior who makes you feel good about yourself but doesn't call you to repentance doesn't make you new doesn't rule your life you're underestimating him Jesus is so much greater than your man centered thinking He came so that everything sinful in you could be crushed. He came so that you could be made alive in him by his resurrection. He came so that you could be forgiven. He came so that you could live in his victory and freedom for God for the rest of your life. For true life, you don't need a self improvement coach. You need a Savior. That only happens through Jesus. That only happens through the cross. So in verses 21 to 23, we, we see that Jesus confronts and corrects Peter's understanding of what he came to do. But if Peter got Jesus wrong, you can bet that his expectations for his own life following Jesus would be wrong too. In verses 24 to 26, Jesus sets out to correct Peter's thinking about what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. You know, the disciples were looking forward to a life of victory and vindication following Jesus. It was about, he was if he was about to be enthroned in Jerusalem and you're a disciple, that kind of had certain expectations with it, didn't it? Right? Okay, maybe I'm going to have a little throne. Maybe these guys will have thrones too. That sounds pretty good. But just stops them in her tracks. And I think before we, we laugh at them and their their wrong direction and we feel smug about ourselves, we need to realize that Jesus confronts all of our expectations for a good, satisfying, full life in these verses. Each of us in this room have certain things that we expect will lead to our betterment, don't we? We have certain things that we think will lead to our flourishing, the fullness of life. We're pretty sure that new job or that new bank account Right, that uh, most recent purchase, maybe, that those things will satisfy us. If we can only get that thing, we'll be fulfilled deeply and have full life. Jesus says no. He says no. Jesus says true life isn't found by pursuing your various dreams, but by taking up your cross and following him and his suffering. Look at verse 24 in Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus had had just told his disciples that he was on his way to suffer and die. And now he says plainly, And if you want to live, you're going to grab your own cross. You're going to hoist it up on your shoulder and you're going to follow me. In other words, Jesus is telling his disciples to lay aside all their expectations of what they want and to be willing to die Jesus. That's the way to life. Look what Jesus says in 25 to 26. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus promises life to his disciples. This road of suffering is a road of life, but not the way that you thought that you'd get it. He promises them life through willingly losing everything for him. For, who, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He inverts the paradigm. Following Jesus' life because by following him we gain the benefits of his victory. But there are two aspects to this life that we gain through laying our lives down and following Jesus. First, there's, there's life later. There's also life now. So look with me at why there's life later. And to, to do that, we're going to have to jump a little past our passage and look at verse 27. I'm going to paraphrase just a little bit. Jesus says, Be willing to follow me, quote, for or maybe because the Son of Man, Jesus, is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father. And then he will pay each person according to what he has done. Think about it this way. If Jesus has conquered in every conceivable way, and if, as the Bible promises, he's coming again, then all that seems then all that seems to be reality right now will someday come to an end. It will be over. Things will be set right. The paradigm that's inverted will be switched over on its head again. And we'll see things clearly. When there's a king who's come and works out the implications of his victory, In all this world. And if that king is coming, you're going to be in the worst situation that you can imagine if you're not on his side. And conversely, if you give yourself to living for Jesus now, despite any sacrifice it may require, when people look at you strangely because you're a Christian, or when you give up your time and your money to serve the church, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be unquestionably worth it. One person who's left as an example that Jesus is worth every sacrifice in recent history is Jim Elliot. How many people know who that is in this room? Just out of curiosity. That's a bunch of people. All right. Jim was a missionary to an indigenous population in Ecuador. And after months of preparation, after making contact through gifts that were dropped from the plane with the local people they wanted to evangelize, Jim and four others finally landed their plane on the river next to where this tribe was. They wanted to meet them face to face. They wanted this tribe to know Jesus. But they knew that this tribe was a dangerous tribe. They knew that they were warlike. But they were dedicated disciples who were on mission, and they considered the risk of losing their lives to be worth it. If it meant just that just a few more people would come to know and love and worship Jesus. So they determined ahead of time that they wouldn't try to defend themselves no matter what happened. They prayed, they flew in, they landed, and they got out of the plane, and they were killed. But God used their deaths in an incredible way. You know, famously, the tribe ultimately came to know Jesus through the ongoing work of missionaries that came afterward. You know, Jim's most famous quote is exactly in keeping with this passage. He wrote about the Christian life this way. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You want to keep your life, you're going to lose it. You lay your life down for Jesus, you're going to gain it. Our hope as Christians is profoundly eschatological. That means that we're saying that our hope extends beyond the scope of this life. We look forward to a day when Jesus reigns supreme over all things, visibly on this earth. We look forward to a day when we'll live with him, free of suffering, free of pain, free of sorrow. That's sweet. Free of fighting sinful flesh any longer. One day when free from sinning. I love that line. We look forward to a time when we'll worship him face-to-face as his people, cherished and loved by him. When we're intimately united with God through him. Jesus' counsel to his disciples is that losing your life in order to serve him with all that you have, no matter what it costs, is worth it. It's worth every sacrifice. It's a true way to life later. But it isn't as if the only upshot of these verses is future. You know, that's not, that's not the case. The testimony of Christian after Christian, both in Scripture and today, is that living with Jesus, with loss, with sacrifice, willingly serving him despite anything it might cost, is worth it even now. Because living for Jesus is to have fellowship with Jesus, and that's what we're made for. Do you know that? That's what we're made for. And do you know that you really need to use things how they were made? Right? Right? If you want to wash your clothes, I doubt you put the oven on at 450, Toss a bunch of your clothes in there just to kind of, oh, I've got to clean these things up a little bit. I mean, you'd sterilize them, but you do a lot more than that. Well, what about uh, your pets? If you have pets, you know, maybe you're thinking, I think I'd like to use my fridge as their, as their house. Put a little milk in there. You know, the cleanup would be pretty horrible, I think. But as human beings, we were made to worship God through living our lives in service for our savior for jesus that's what we're made for and i think that we're often dissatisfied people in life because we keep getting it wrong we keep stirring our cake mix with an iphone and our sinful hearts in the world around us prompts us to pursue ourselves all the time but we weren't created for ourselves we were created to live for another and just open your eyes next time you walk down the street. Isn't it true that every advertisement is just a promise of you 2.0, right? You with better sex, you with more money, you with more personal power, you with a better house. Jesus' words are a severe and specific and needed warning to us that you 2.0 is a false promise of life. Jesus says, seeking to save your life, trying to live more and more for you, that's the way to death. Can't you feel that truth in your own life? Can't you feel that? Just stop. And all this is uncomfortable. We don't like to do this. Stop and, and think about yourself. Look deep inside. Has living for yourself been life-giving? Truly? Deeply? Ultimately? No, but even if it feels satisfying right now in the moment, I promise you a day will come soon when you'll be forced to see that the emperor has no clothes and the emperor is you. You are made for the worship and the praise of God, not for you 2.0. The deepest joys of our lives are actually the opposite of turning inward. I love to hike in the mountains. I love to be up and on this precipice and I don't go there so I can You know, take a a a selfie, although I guess that happens sometimes. I don't go there to take a a mirror out, maybe, and look at my own reflection. We'll say that. Right? I, I go there to get lost in the grandeur of something bigger than myself. You know, mountains are cool, but God is so much greater. So much more worthy of your worship. And Jesus, God incarnate, the resurrected King of the universe, says, lose yourself, lose your life in my service. There's no one greater. There's nothing more satisfying than me. Because of who Jesus is, because of his suffering and his death and his resurrection, you can enjoy him deeply and intimately forever. Because of the cross, you can take up yours. And you can live. So let me ask you, what are you holding on to that keeps you from having more of Jesus? We all do this. I do this. What's keeping you from willingly losing your life for him? Is it your money? Is it your personal time? Is it your hobbies? Is it your reputation? Is it your sense that you need to impress the people around you? Maybe you just don't want to look foolish. Maybe you don't want to give up your reputation because people will look down on you. They'll malign you for, for being true follower of Christ. But whatever you're holding on to, it's not worth it. It's not worth it if it keeps you from true life, from Jesus, and from serving him. So consider this as we wrap up. Back in the day when, you know, the buffalo would be herded up together, and they would be driven towards certain death off a cliff, do you think that the buffalo in the middle would have easily been able to stop and kind of Hit the brakes and consider, you know, I don't know this is going to work out very well. You know, guys, uh, maybe just wait up. Maybe we should turn around. You know, he wouldn't have done that because it's hard to see where you're at when you're in the midst of a herd running to death. Our passage this morning is countercultural to the extreme, it's confrontational. It confronts our expectations about Jesus and it confronts our expectations about what living as His disciples is all about. But it confronts us for a reason. Because we are living in a world full of people running at breakneck speed toward death. But ultimate comfort, joy, and life aren't around the corner of that racetrack, they're not around the corner of the pursuit of U 2.0. Those sacrifices aren't worth it. Paradoxically, life abundant is found in taking up your crosses, denying yourselves, and living for Jesus. We have a message of hope, guys. Let's live it. Let's share it with those around us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Lord, we are confronted by your word. Your word is good. Uh, Lord, we we praise you that you have been so wise to send Jesus to us so that we would get a glimpse of you in a fuller way so we would see that it's not worth it to pursue ourselves. It's worth it to pursue Jesus and to lose our lives in his service. Oh, Lord, I ask that you would change our hearts, that you would uh, ignite a flame in our hearts of love for Jesus so that we would consider any loss as a small thing compared to the immeasurable riches of knowing him. We ask this in his name, Jesus' name, Amen.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.